Chapter Twenty of Judge Burnham's Daughters. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Judge Burnham's Daughters by Pansy. Chapter Twenty. Belated Work. The days that immediately followed this revelation were strange ones to Mrs. Burnham. Long afterwards, she looked back upon them and wondered that her overstrained brain did not reel under the intensity of the excitement. Her life had been unusually shielded from any experiences connected with death. Her father, it is true, had lingered in his sunny room on the borders of the other world for weeks, but Ruth's daily visits to him were filled with not only the tenderest but the brightest memories. Always he was in the sunshine, ready to cheer and encourage her, so full of bright anticipations for himself that it had not seemed possible to think of the word death in connection with him, and the final scene had been such a jubilant entering in that she could only feel afterward as though she had a glimpse of eternal life. But this was different, so utterly different. It was not that Seraph made any visible sign of fear or of rebellion, such was not her nature, but that she had a fierce battle to fight in her own heart was only too apparent. Her face changed alarmingly in the course of the next few days, took on the worn, haggard look of extreme illness and anxiety, and wrung Mrs. Burnham's heart whenever she saw it, with a pain unlike any that she ever felt before. A human soul in peril, and she the only person near who knew the one sure way for safety, yet feeling powerless to lead to it. She was made to feel, during those first days, that she had managed the trust that the doctor had imposed on her in an utterly irrational manner. Judge Burnham was at first angrily incredulous. It was utter nonsense that a girl who had been in splendid health up to the time when she had caught a violent cold should sink into a rapid consumption. That disease was not in the Burnham family. They were, as a family, noted for strong constitutions. The thing was incredible. Westwood was nervous or careless or mistaken, at least. They must have counsel. He wondered that the physician had not attended to this before if he really feared danger. And a solemn council of eminent physicians was held, although Dr. Westwood assured the father that in his judgment it was unnecessary and useless. So indeed it proved. There was no dissenting voice. Dr. Westwood, on his part, expressed himself privately to Mrs. Burnham as being extremely shocked over the effect that the news had had upon his patient, and did not hesitate to say that he feared she had been too abrupt. The only reply he made to her explanation that Seraph had overheard his own words, and precipitated the tidings upon herself, was to gravely repeat his fear that she had been too abruptly told, and to wish that they had kept their knowledge to themselves. As for her husband, he angrily blamed her for exciting Seraph in any such manner, and he should have supposed her judgment might have served her better than that. But Ruth could forgive much to the disappointed father during these trying days. These were his daughters, and in strangely different and in strangely unthought of ways, he was losing them both. Meantime there came into her heart a genuine pity for Mr. Satterley. Let him be what he would, a subject only for contempt heretofore, there was no denying the fact that the dignity of a terrible sorrow was upon him. He came and went a dozen times a day, always with that look of misery deepening about him, 
which told of a sudden and bitter disappointment settling down on his soul. Ruth, watching him, being waylaid many times during the day to answer his eager questions, felt convinced for the first time that at least one thing in his life had been genuine. He loved the woman who was now his promised wife. Was this swift coming sorrow a portion of his retribution for the past? Her manner toward him grew gentle, almost, in spite of herself. He might have been guilty of that which had led her to despise him, but he was suffering now too greatly to make her want to add one feather's weight to the blow. So she took care to speak an encouraging word when she could, and let voice and manner tell him that her heart ached over his burden, and grew nearer to liking him during these brief encounters than she had imagined it possible she ever could. And still she carried about with her hourly, a burden different from that of others, but heavy and bitter. How to reach this girl, whose life was slipping so rapidly away? How to help her with that important suggestion of infinite help, before it should be forever too late? This was the question and the longing that so grew upon her, that it was becoming almost insupportable. Could she bear to live, and walk about these familiar rooms, and order their belongings, reminded all the time of one who had been with her years and years, and had gone, and feel that because of her unfaithfulness the going had been rayless of hope? A professional nurse was installed once more, the disease having now taken a sufficiently serious form to awaken the respect of those important persons. Ruth had more leisure and less responsibility, more time, therefore, to break her heart over what she, alone of all the household, felt and feared. She betook herself to prayer. Such eager, longing cries for this soul as seemed to her the Lord must hear, and of course he heard, but his answer was to reveal to her herself. The scales that had blinded her for years fell off, and she realized only too plainly that much of the unhappiness of her life she had brought upon herself. She had done her duty by her husband's daughters, good measure pressed down, oftentimes running over, but she had never loved them, nor tried to love them. She had mentioned their names many times in her prayers, but she had never prayed for them in her life, with the heart-wrung cry with which she now almost hourly brought this one to the notice of the healer. It came at last to be almost the cry of Israel of old, I will not let thee go except, realizing, oh, so fully her mistakes, realizing that had she lived before them a different life in every way, both of these who had made her life miserable might be today living for Christ. Yet she cried out to the great physician, Nevertheless, for thy sake, Lord. It was several days after she had begun to pray in this manner that her anxiety expressed itself in words. She was alone with Seraph, the nurse having taken advantage of a quiet hour to secure some much-needed rest. She began by almost timidly suggesting that the pastor of the church at the corner had called the day before, and indeed called often. Would not Seraph, some morning when she was feeling pretty well, like to have him come up and see her? Silence followed, lasting so long that Ruth thought her question was not going to be answered. Then, in a cold, constrained voice, I don't know why I should care to see him. I do not feel in the least acquainted with him. The only time I ever saw him alone was that day he called when you were not at home, and Kate thought you were, 
and he spent ten minutes in asking me about the last concert, which soprano in my judgment was the better, and whether, on the whole, I thought Miss Nelson's voice was as good as her cousin's, who used to sing that part. I don't feel any particular desire to see him. I have lost my interest in concerts. It all came over Ruth, then, so pitifully. The pale face, save for those fateful spots of crimson high on the cheeks, the hollow-sounding voice which told only too plainly that the singer would sing no more, the short breath which made her pause frequently between even short sentences, and the apathetic voice, hinting of interest lost in almost everything. She had meant to be very quiet, very careful about exciting her charge, and she was not given to tears. Nevertheless, they filled her eyes now, as she came over to the invalid chair which was stretched back almost like a bed, and knelt beside it and touched the white hand lying idly on her lap, and spoke low and tremulously. Seraph, I want to say something to you. I feel, oh, more than I can ever express, how far short of all that I ought to have been I have seemed to you. I have lived before you the Christian life in such a way as to lead you to feel that there was no reality in it, and no comfort to be had from it and as though I cared little whether you walked that way or not. This I realize, and I want to tell you what a mistake it all is. There is a vital personal union with Christ, which is able to make up for the loss of all other things. There is a heaven so glorious that we cannot even in our wildest flights imagine it. I know, for I saw my father bid good-bye to this world, and the glory on his face as the light of the other dawned upon him, was not to be mistaken. Then I know, by my own experience, that Christ is able to give such strength and comfort as are to be found nowhere else. And if I, such a miserable Christian as I have been, can be sure of this, and I am, ought you not to believe it? If I could tell you how I long to have you take the rest which this friend stands ready to offer, if I could give you any idea of the consuming desire I have to see you sheltered in his arms of love, and have him undo some of the mischief which my cold and careless life has done, I almost think you would, in very pity for me, turn your thoughts and hopes to him. It was not what she had meant to say. There was not a word spoken of all that which she had lain awake and planned the night before. It had not, at that time, seemed to Ruth wise to speak of herself at all, for she believed that Seraph was too indifferent to her to care what she felt, and here she was almost basing her plea on the strength of the pain which she felt for this dying girl. Neither was the answer she received in any degree what she had planned for. She had thought that there might be, possibly, indignation, or sarcasm, or coldness, or perhaps no attempt at reply, and indeed this last seemed, for a few moments, what was to be. Seraph lay back and looked at her, with no trace of emotion on her face, with apparently no quickening of her pulses. Yet presently she spoke, slowly, in a half-curious tone, as one might who was making out a puzzle. I almost believe you have been in earnest all the time. I thought your religion was a sham, worn as one would wear a fashionable dress, because in your very high and exclusive circle— it was the fashion not to be fashionable in a worldly way, but to be religious. I did not think you cared whether Minta and I, or even Papa, 
ever had any religion or not. Save so much for Papa as would admit him into the fashionable exclusiveness where you belonged. We didn't think you wanted us there, but I half believe we were mistaken all the while. These sentences were spoken slowly, almost impersonally, as if she were not referring to herself and that other woman who knelt before her. But Ruth was too intensely in earnest now to have this strange language or this utterly indifferent manner prevent her message. I do not wonder, she said, I do not wonder at anything which the mistakes of my past life may have led you to think. It has all been wrong. I was never a hypocrite. I was simply a half-hearted Christian. Yet halfway as I was, I tell you in all sincerity, I could not have lived my life at all, it seems to me, without Christ. What I want now more than anything else in life, so much that it seems to me I would willingly die to secure it, is to have you give yourself into his keeping, and learn from him all that he can be to a soul. Oh, Seraph, will you do this? Will you forget all about me, and turn your thoughts to him? Again there was no response. Seraph's eyes were dry and her face composed, though her stepmother's was wet with fast-falling tears. A long time it seemed to the excited woman that she waited, not daring to say more, to other ears than God's, but praying, oh, in an agony of appeal for an answer of peace. I'll tell you, Mamma, who I should like to have come and stay with me a little while, and that is Susan Erskine. That at last was the answer she received. Ruth rose up then, brushing the tears hastily from her face, and in that instant she was shown another revelation of her heart. She thought she had been to its utmost depths, but in the light of this experience she saw that she not only wanted this soul saved, but had wanted the master to let her be the instrument in his hands, and that it hurt her to have herself in effect pushed aside and another messenger called after. It was an instant's revelation, and the sudden revulsion of feeling which it caused passed almost as quickly as it had come. "'It is a good thought,' she said humbly. "'Susan could help you.' She always helped me. She is teaching, but perhaps a substitute could be found. I will write to her this evening. No, I will have your father telegraph if you like. That will save you from so long waiting. I feel almost sure she can arrange to come. Then send for her. She is the only one I can think of in the world whom I would like to see. And Seraph had turned her head away from her mother and closed her eyes. Then the nurse came, and Ruth went away, went to her own room, and locked the door, and went on her knees. She spoke no audible word, but knelt there long, and rose up quieted. Money is a potent factor in this world. Susan Erskine was three hundred miles away, was holding an important position in an important school, and it was in the middle of the term. When Judge Erskine died, and the old home was broken, Many plans had been discussed as to what would be done. Ruth wanted Susan, and would have been willing to agree to almost any arrangement which would keep her in the family, but no one knew better than Susan that the mother would not be at rest in Judge Burnham's household, that she did not fit it gracefully, and that she jarred on the nerves of the master, and, for the matter of that, on the mistress as well, although her heart was full of grateful love toward her now. Susan did not discuss many plans. She kept her own counsel, but had, in the course of a few weeks, 
announced that mother and she were going back home, to the neighborhood where they had lived so long, that her old position was waiting for her, and mother had many friends there, and in every respect she believed it would be best. And Judge Burnham had said that Susan Erskine was the most sensible woman of his acquaintance, that he had always thought so. Nevertheless, he sent the telegrams which Ruth suggested, with promptness, and added other and expressive ones, about the importance of having the invalid's wishes respected, and about the fact that any salary desired might be offered for a substitute, if Susan would but come. So Susan came. To her mother she said, I think I ought to go, for I used to have influence with the poor girl, and now that she is going to die, I may be able to help her. Of course you ought to go, said Mrs. Erskine. What are schools, where they teach grammar and things, when a body comes almost to the end, and needs the kind of help that we were put into the world to give? Poor thing, what an everlasting pity it is that she put off the only important work in life until life was pretty nigh over. But there, I'd a done the same thing myself, poor fool that I was, and would be doing it yet, I dare say, if it hadn't been for your father, and to think that maybe that girl will see him in a little while. I could most feel like asking her to take a message for me if I was going along. I'm getting to be an old woman, Susan, and I do feel kind of homesick after your father once in a while, now that's a fact. It isn't as though I had had him all his life, you know, for I hadn't. There was a good deal of wasted time. And Susan, who had steadily given her life to the care and comfort of her mother, smiled on her cheerily and said, Never mind, mother, you and father will have time enough together to make up for it all one of these days. That's the living truth, said the old lady with a smile on her homely face, suggestive of the peace of heaven. And while she trotted about, packing her daughter's trunk, she sang in a quavering voice and on a high key, When we've been there ten thousand years, bright shining as the sun, we've no last days to sing his praise. Then when we first begun. End of chapter twenty. Recording by Tricia G.